with your help, we can continue to fight for freedom. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to tntradio.live. Weekends are better when you spend it with us. Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT. Welcome back to Weekends. This is hour three of the Saturday edition of the show, and I can't wait to introduce you to my brand new guest this hour. Kind of extraordinary that we're going to speak to somebody who was a, a shared winner of a Pulitzer Prize in 1983 for general local reporting. Well, let me tell you all about Daniel or Dan Lozada, who began his career in journalism as a teenage police reporter went on to become a columnist and later on an investigative reporter for major US newspapers. He did share that Pulitzer Prize in 1983 for general local reporting and has been honoured with more than two dozen state and national awards for writing and reporting and his work has been collected in college textbooks on feature and news writing. He was awarded an American Bar Association National Award for Public Service for exposing corruption in the federal bankruptcy courts. He's a member of the Scripps Howard Journalism Hall of Fame. He has covered a wide range of national stories, including political exposés and extensive investigations into human rights abuses in state and federal prisons, where he was once called in to negotiate for the lives of hostages in a death row uprising. He's written for the New York Times, the New York Daily News, and for international publications. He's currently finishing a book on the Chicago mob and the myth of Al Capone. He's engaged in a documentary film investigating a series of high-profile cold case murders tied to police corruption in the American heartland. Well, he has another book, Lawrence Wright, the Manchurian journalist, documents for readers that their concerns about American journalism are justified. It shows that as the watchdog of democracy, journalism has since the Cold War been compromised by influences unseen and unheard by the public in deciding what people read, hear, and subsequently believe. Dan Lozada, welcome to Weekends. Jason, thank you for having me. What what a thrill, Dan! I mean, it's it's extraordinary, and um, to to be able to talk to somebody who's been watching this their entire life, to then put pen to paper and uh, to write books on a subject that many people who have been suspicious of for some time, who have been acknowledged with Operation Mockingbird, we've seen the videos uh, in Congress asking these questions. And you've gone and done the very hard yards because part of this process of, of the story, I mean, just the door knocking, the the, the turning up, uh, speaking to, to Lawrence Wright and getting these odd responses and getting to a point that it's almost like he was leading you down the garden path and you admit in the process that you realise that you're not going to get the interview that you're looking for in, in this. Um, and, and so to play, it's it's a great big game. The, the process of writing a book and, and, and investigative journalism as it is, but you've been doing it for so long now, I, I assume that it's just it's just par for the course, but maybe we can start from the very beginning. How do you become a cadet journalist? What made you decide that this was the, uh, the career path that you, you wanted to take? <laughs> well, Jason, I grew up in a, a small town in, in middle America and, and most of the uh, high school graduates uh, uh, went to work in the auto factories nearby, and and uh, it wasn't attractive to me. I was uh, also uh, coming out of high school just as the Vietnam draft was ramping up seriously, and and so I went uh, immediately into to uh, college classes uh, a month after I was out of high school, and uh, I saw an opportunity to pick up a job making a little money as a sports editor on the uh, on the campus daily newspaper. Uh, 
which I did. And, and I didn't have any experience really in journalism, but I had done a little bit of writing uh, while I was in high school. So I found it attractive. And I also got to hang around uh, journalists every now and then uh, at the uh, newspaper in town and uh, meet some people and, and get to know them a little bit. Later on, uh, I worked for a small weekly, and and then one day the managing editor of the daily newspaper in town called me up and said he needed a police reporter, and the uh, he said, but uh, he was willing to give me a shot at it, even though I was pretty young. I wasn't old enough to take a legal drink by that time, and uh, uh, he said, but he was going to hire two people. He was going to hire a journalist who had actually had a, a fairly high profile and had 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 some struggles in his career and had moved down into a smaller paper. So he hired both of us for the job and we shared it for six weeks. And at the end of six weeks, he said, well, we're only going to keep one of you. He said, uh, and I think uh, we're going to keep the other guy. Mm-hmm. So as it turned out, the other guy got into a fist fight with the sheriff a couple nights later and he got fired. And so I, I got the job by default. Oh, what an incredible story. It's, it's just amazing how happenstance can 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 play out in such a way. I mean, it's it's ridiculous to ask you how you felt, but there must have been some emotion at the uh, at the dismissal, losing the role and then getting it back, almost as if it was some sort of fate. But at that stage, you land this role and you're under the age of 21 years of age and you must have just, what, jumped in and realised that you've had six weeks of a some form of apprenticeship with this senior uh, reporter. Were you confident enough at that stage to take it on and uh, and make it your own, or was there still a huge learning curve ahead of you? Well, there was a very steep learning curve, I think, right away, because my background uh, was one of a, a pretty quiet life. My my parents were both evangelical Christians. The uh, the most excitement we get we had in life was going to the bowling alley, and so and so when I first went out onto the street as uh, age eighteen, uh, chasing cops, I discovered the adrenaline rush of journalism, and before long I was going into crime scenes and I was chasing cops down the street uh, as they were writing signal ten uh, lights and sirens and. I got a big uh, thrill out of being able to to chase those stories, get them done quickly by deadline, and and uh, and finish out the day with the last edition of the paper coming off the press. It's such a different era, of course, because when we're talking about print journalism and actually having to to sort of meet deadlines because it's got to go to print compared to today where the major newspapers generally release a new story or, or, you know, here's another story, another hour, another story or stories that seem to come out. So it can be timed in that way, but very, very different approach. Um, this must have gone on f- for many years, uh, the process before it returned digital. But you move away from this type of journalism and become um, uh, an author uh, later on. How, how does this become the approach uh, as a journalist? Is it just writing anything that you can write, um, whether it be you know short form journalism to a book, the research process? How do you develop different ideas and, and able to follow them and incorporate them into daily life so that, for example, that you you know you, you get to pay the rent each week? Where does the creativity uh, blend into the to the to the new ambitions that you have developed now? That was a uh, uh, an interesting transition for me because I worked for newspapers then for uh, until um, 
until Columbine, uh, the Columbine High School ma massacre. And that was the last story that I covered for uh, daily newspapers. Um, I was, uh, I was uh, uh, oddly enough, uh, I had gotten into trouble with the newspaper, newspaper over some investigative work that I had done. And there had been some disagreements. And so uh, they put me on double secret probation and made me go cover the state legislature in Colorado. And the uh, and I was working in the state legislature there, and uh, as a punishment detail, mm -hmm. they left me there for for quite a while. And then I was there when Columbine uh, jumped off, and so the first day of the uh, after the attacks, of course, both newsrooms in town are extremely busy. The Denver Post and the Rocky Mountain News trying to cover the case, and so the day went by, and nobody called me from the newsroom. I didn't get a, a call to help. Another day went by, I didn't get a call. And on the third day, I got a call from the city editor. And he said, we got a problem. I said, what's the problem? He said, we let police beat slide and we don't have any, any sources in the police department. And we can't even find out who's running the Columbine investigation. I said, what do you want me to do? I said, can you find out who's running the Columbine investigation? I said, give me an hour and I'll call you back. So the previous year, I'd done an investigation into organized crime, trying to take over the taxi industry in Denver. And I developed some uh, some sources on gun running that was being done by by uh, through the taxi cab companies. And in the course of that, I developed some sources in the underground about gun running. So I started calling all the sources that I had back during that investigation. And I finally hit one who was able to tell me something about what the police were looking for. He told me that they were that I could expect to find that the guns in Columbine came from the same place as a weapon that was used to kill a, a, uh, a local police officer. And so I called the the deputy who had handled that case and I left a message saying I wanted to know uh, where the gun came from that was used to kill Officer Timothy Musbrocker. And uh, of course, I didn't get through. I left a voicemail. And about 10 minutes later, I got a call from uh, Lieutenant John Kickbush. He said, you called one of my deputies and asked this question, and I want to know why. I said, meet me for coffee, and I'll tell you. Well, it turned out he was running the Columbine investigation. And after that day, I was on the inside of the investigation. So those are the kinds of things that that I developed skills I developed and the kinds of things that that helped me make a transition. But I left after I left daily newspapers after Columbine, went to work for a magazine out of New York, did investigative reporting for them. And and uh, finally, I, I left and became a full time freelancer. And after that, I started exploring their ideas of using some of the, the skills I developed in newspapers to do and in investigative reporting, but it was very difficult to do. As a freelancer, you, you can't find the, the funds, the, the backing, whatever else you need to do real investigative reporting. And unfortunately, throughout newspapers, investigative reporting had gone by the way. It was uh, reporters who had experience, who had knowledge, who had institutional knowledge, uh, were being dismissed and looking for other jobs, scrambling to find work. And young reporters were being hired who didn't have the uh, ability to share in that institutional knowledge. So in that transition, it, it became more imperative to, if you really wanted to do investigative work, you had to find a different kind of outlet. And that's what led me to eventually doing the kind of work that I did that led to the book on Lawrence Wright.
And this is where we're going to get to. We're going to take a break in a, in a couple of minutes. I, I guess what I'd like to ask you now is the um, you've gone through this process that you've been disciplined at the at the news, but you, you are already an award winning journalist at this stage. Can you explain um, what it was that uh, you shared this Pulitzer Prize in local reporting for? Well, actually, <clears throat> the Pulitzer was for coverage of uh, a natural disaster in uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana. And uh, in 1982, um, uh, it had been a, a tough winter. Uh, there came to be a lot of flooding in the city. People were evacuated. I was among the evacuees. Uh, Ronald Reagan came to walk the sandbag lines uh, during this crisis. It, was, it made a lot of national news. And uh, I spent my time out on the street pretty much every day and every night and was writing very colorful stories about, about what was happening. There were uh, high school kids who came down to the sandbag lines and and uh, and threw sandbags. And the coverage that we did of of that event uh, won the Pulitzer, which in fact opened the door for me to to move on into investigative reporting later on. Oh, it's uh, incredible, isn't it, that um, you can be one stage the apprentice, uh, the cadet. The next stage, you're out there writing colourful stories about a major event and being awarded uh, what many would consider to be the epitome of a career, but you go on and, and win other awards in your career. Is this something that a journalist can expect or, or, or at this stage are you realising that you might be a little bit better than the rest of the pack? <laughs> that's an interesting question because I don't think I ever thought of myself as better than the rest of the pack, but I did do things differently uh, yeah. th than a lot of journalists because I was interested in what was going on among common people. Mm. I was not so interested in covering uh, politics and the uh, the mayor's office or covering the state legislature or hanging out with politicians and writing about what they had to say. I was more interested in in knowing what the little people thought. And so I spent my time around there and I wrote from that perspective and that got a lot of attention. Oh, isn't that wonderful? Look, there's a common theme in today's show, Dan. Uh, in the first hour, I interviewed one of our own presenters, Joseph Arthur, who is a, um, a wonderful presenter, but he's a prolific uh, musician. He's recorded 16 albums, 10 EPs. His work's been featured in uh, a dozen films and a dozen TV shows. Quite extraordinary. And we talked about the creative process and the discipline, perhaps, that's involved. But we also spoke about it from the idea of uh, being in flow and, and finding your life's purpose one way or another. In the last hour, I spoke to Strait strategist Rick Brown, who uh, a political observer who's worked on both sides of the political fence. And interestingly, um, he, he talked about uh, the establishment and went into great detail uh, over hundreds of years of how that was formed. He talked about the American Constitution, the Electoral College, and he explained that the rise of Trump, which he said he doesn't have an interest either way in, but it was, again, reflecting the the average punter, the average person in the street, the little person, as you described. Uh, and I find it fascinating. I'm just pointing that out for, for your own benefit and for that of the audience that uh, you may well see a, a theme emerging here, that uh, the great work that's happening in, in, in what was old media, but it's emerging into a a new paradigm shift in new media here with brand new approaches, which probably explains to many people how it is that you can build something from the ground up that's entirely new. And I'm thrilled that we've got Dan with us because after the break, we're going to talk about how he discovered this character, journalist Lawrence Wright, which led him to form the idea 
would you believe it, to write a book called The Manchurian Journalist. Unbelievable. We're going to get into that after the break. But before we do, did you know that there are many ways that you can watch or listen to TNT? Why not stream us direct from our website on your desktop, tablet, or mobile device, or download an app from the App Store. We even stream live on X, YouTube, Rumble, and Odyssey. We've got you covered in today's News Talk, TNT Radio. TNT's Pervoy Morich. He details factually how Russia is rolling out the algorithm ghetto. Um, you know, the, the, the multipolar edition of the algorithm ghetto, a prototype of a traffic light that records traffic violations by a pedestrian at a crossing was tested in Moscow. So Russians now, they'll, they'll have a, the government will take a snapshot of their face and then run that through the databases to figure out who is who and then find them. Uh, I suppose. Uh, and then, you know, he, he points out that there are a lot of developments now. Moscow 2030, it's, it's uh, they want to make uh, Moscow achieve smart city status. Uh, and there's just, you know, you, you look at the white papers, Moscow and Russia are all in on Agenda 2030, smart cities, algorithm ghetto, digital IDs. Pervoy Morich on today's News Talk TNT. This is generally the view of people, oh, we don't know much about Assange. Well, you should know, because whether you know it or not, he is fighting for you. For your courage and leadership and tenacity in journalism and publishing. Since 2010, Assange has been held in progressively narrower, darker, colder and crueler spaces. He has been detained since the 7th of December 2010 in one form or another. And we are now here after years of imprisonment. WikiLeaks is a non-state hostile intelligence service. I think the man is a high-tech terrorist. A high-tech terrorist. A traitor, a treasonous. He has to answer for what he has done. Assange faces up to 175 years in prison for publishing classified documents exposing U.S. war crimes. The U.S. government narrative about Julian is a complete fraud. It is a complete fraud from A to Z. Julian took on the most powerful countries in the world, basically all of them. We now have confirmed that there were plans to kidnap Julian here in the center of London or even assassinate him. No one who instigated that illegal and immoral war has been brought to justice. But the great truth-teller sits behind bars. If wars can be started by lies, peace can be started by truth. Julian Assange is a hero. What if everything we thought we knew about somebody was a lie? Would we be willing to go on a new journey of understanding? This is a story of deception, lies, bravery, and a man who risked everything to bring the truth to light. Mr. Assange shows all the symptoms that are typical for a person that has been exposed to psychological torture over a prolonged period of time. He looked at me intensely and said, I hate to say this. He then hesitated, visibly troubled and searching for words, and then he finally said, please, save my life. 
May future generations have the ability to speak without restraint. May our children and their children know truth and have access to information that leads to justice. Wherever Julian goes, free speech goes with him. If there is a bird that is about to take flight, stretch her wings and rule the skies, may it be a peace dove and no longer a bold eagle. If you think Assad is a traitor, he's a rapist, he's a narcissist, he's a hacker, I don't blame you because you have been deceived. And if you think you've not been deceived, that's normal because otherwise it wouldn't be deception. Sounds pretty good. It sounds real, dude. Not bad, huh? This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back to Weekends. My guest this hour, author, journalist, Dan Lozada. And now we're going to get into the business of today's interview, talking about a book, Lawrence Wright, the Manchurian journalist, the latest of Dan's work. Dan, how did you first arrive at these suspicions of Lawrence Wright that led you down the pathway to start asking more questions? Well, I think the last thing I expected to do in my career was do an investigation of another journalist. Mm. Uh, not something that's typically done, uh, but those kinds of things do happen. But it just so happened that um, through a series of, of coincidences, um, I got introduced to uh, Freedom Magazine, which was uh, owned and run by the Church of Scientology. And they were in the day uh, at the time uh, looking for freelance writers to come in and, and do some work. I was, um, uh, I did a little research into the church. I had no attention to Scientology ever in my life. And, and uh, so I did a little research, discovered they were controversial. Controversy had never scared me. And so I, uh, I wound up having some conversations with them about the coverage and by the American press uh, and the press worldwide of the Church of Scientology. And it so happened that Lawrence Wright had just written a story for the New Yorker magazine about the Church of Scientology. And executives of the church asked me if I would, uh, uh, if I could take a look and uh, develop some ideas for their magazine about why the church's coverage had been so biased. Well, I was skeptical, but uh, they opened their their doors to me, and they I told them that. You know, if I was going to take a look at things related to their interests, they would have to be completely transparent with me, which they turned out to be. Mm. They provided records, documents, access to people, etc. But as I got started looking into the book that Lawrence Wright had written about the church going clear, um, I began to explore uh, Wright's history in journalism because there were some questions in the book about accuracy and how thoroughly investigative it was, but the book got a lot of attention. Then there was a film made about the book by Alex Gibney. And so in the course of starting to pull apart some things about Lawrence Wright's life, um, I worked with a guy named Hank Alberelli. He wrote a, a book about the CIA and Frank Olson, um, a uh, chemist who was involved in LSD experiments with the CIA and wound up uh, uh, departing a 10th floor hotel 
uh, room by the window. And uh, uh, Hank's um, knowledge of the CIA and his uh, sources within the agency and within that intelligence network were uh, helpful um, as I was uh, beginning to pull apart pieces of Lawrence Wright's life. But as uh, I was looking, I did what investigative reporters do. I, I examined the stories that Lawrence Wright had told about himself. And, and for your listeners who don't know who Lawrence Wright is, he's a very high-profile American journalist. He works for New Yorker magazine. He's written numerous books, um, and he won a Pulitzer Prize in uh, uh, 2007 for his book, Looming Tower, which investigated al-Qaeda and the uh, uh, the attack and uh, attacks on 9-11. And, um, and so at first blush, I thought, well, I would take a look at what he wrote about Scientology and, and take a look at the accuracy. It was getting widespread attention around the country. The New York Times was writing about it. It was uh, becoming, the book was becoming the Bible on what was true about Scientology. But I found that a lot of what was included in the book was uh, prior reporting by, by other people. Um, a lot of it had um, uh, to do with his perspective uh, on things as opposed to what other people's perspective might be. He promised in the book to to uncover why Scientology had been um, so vilified as a religion. But the book never really touched on those things. It basically criticized the, the church, which was his right to do, and that was fine. But as I began to look at him and talk to Hank Alberelli about this case, I discovered something very interesting about Lawrence Wright in, uh, at the, that he had written about in a memoir that he had written at age 39 before he became uh, a high-profile journalist. He was working then for Texas Monthly, um, a cultural magazine out of Austin, Texas, that uh, uh, produced some really high-quality magazine writing. And um, I noticed that uh, the bank uh, that his, where his father had been president when they moved to Dallas from Oklahoma when he was a young man, um, was owned by an individual named Robert Story. And banking records in Texas were kind of hard to get, and I, I had another freelancer help me, Joe Taglieri, um, who finally managed to get a hold of some records that showed Story's ownership of this little storefront bank, Lakewood Bank and Trust. So I was talking with Hank Alberelli one day, and, and I, I told him I'd, I'd found these banking records I was looking for on Lawrence Wright's father's bank, and, and uh, that it was owned by, by a man named Robert Story. And he said, uh, you're kidding me, Robert Story? And I said, yeah, Robert Story. Who's Robert Story? He said, well, Robert Story was one of the most powerful people in the creation of the American Intelligence Network. Wow. And I found this uh, to be kind of an interesting detail, yeah. so I began to take a look at who Robert's story was. Well, he was the executive trial prosecutor at the Nuremberg War Trials. He was president of the American Bar Association. He was president of the International Bar Association. He was head of the Board of Foreign Scholarships at the U.S. State Department with William Fulbright. 
And it turned out he was part of a small group of individuals who set about to orchestrate infiltration and uh, intelligence gathering from within academia, from within various professions, and certainly within the media. And as I began to go down the road to pull these details apart, I discovered something called the Bradcliffe Publishing Procedures course that was um, that produced a, a summer program every year for individuals who were interested in the publishing industry. And Lawrence Wright had, uh, according to his memoir, um, left college. Um, his father was a military man, and they had disagreed over uh, whether or not Lawrence would do military service. The Vietnam was the Vietnam War was underway, and uh, Wright had said he had decided to be a conscientious objector. But while he was waiting to find out about his conscientious objector status, he decided to go take, uh, go participate in this little publishing course in uh, at Radcliffe College over the summer after he graduated from Tulane. Well, Radcliffe Publishing Procedures course, um, I learned from from investigating, was not easy to get into. It wasn't a casual thing where you just decided to enroll and you did. They recruited their students, uh, and usually a, a year in advance. It was very difficult to get into this course. Um, and it was run by a woman named Helen Venn. And Helen Venn became uh, very well known in American literary circles. So she had uh, developed uh, a network within uh, among publishers. She was well known among American uh, writers and, and artists, uh, certainly among publishers. And she uh, had an unusual placement rate for her little summer course. She placed 95% of the students in the publishing industry. But as I began to look further at Ellen Venn, I discovered she was involved with something called Franklin Books, which turned out to be uh, a CIA-inspired uh, media propaganda program, and she traveled the world in that process. So as I pulled apart then Lawrence Wright's story about going to Radcliffe, discovering that uh, he had been approved as a conscientious objector by the very tough Dallas Draft Board, only on the strength of an essay that he had written, and that then he told a rather fantastic story about deciding to find conscientious objector service out of the country making a trip down to the United Nations, he said, um, uh, to look for a conscientious objector position out of the country. And some kind person there happened to hand him a list of nonprofit organizations they thought could help him. And he said at the top of the list was the American University in Cairo. And their offices were just a block away. He walked down, met the executive director, and they offered him a fellowship on the spot and wanted him to leave the same day to go to Cairo because they so desperately needed teachers. Well, I hired, I hired a, an individual in, in Egypt to uh, take a look at Lawrence Wright's academic record at the University of, of Cairo, at the American University in Cairo. And 
those kind archivists uh, waived the 50-year rule on his records and turned over uh, those records uh, to my the the person that I'd hired, and it turned out that that uh, Wright's fellowship was sponsored by the Ford Foundation, and that uh, his application uh, wasn't completed until he was already in Egypt. He um, had also failed to conduct the required uh, communications back and forth with the Dallas Draft Board. Wow. I found that unusual. There's like five red flags that have just popped up in these investigations. So in the process of this, this, this pathway, you're still only investigating Lawrence Wright, but you must be thinking, my goodness me, there's where there's smoke, there's fire. You you must be encouraged at this point to to, to move on um, uh, deeper into the investigation. You've called the book The Manchurian Journalist. Can you explain to people that aren't necessarily aware the connection between the Operation Mockingbird here and the term terminate the term Manchurian journalist? So there was a there was a, a book written um in the uh, 1950s called The Manchurian Candidate. Mm. And it was later made into a movie with Frank Sinatra, and it was made into a movie again with- uh, Denzel Washington. Denzel Washington, yes, it was. And so uh, the theme of the book was someone who was brainwashed to perform a political assassination. Well, in looking at what I eventually discovered, which was that Lawrence Wright was deeply connected to CIA-related institutions and organizations, and it seemed to me that these opportunities uh, certainly helped him reach uh, a level of career that that uh, was difficult to reach. And so, uh, despite the fact uh, that Lawrence Wright has developed a reputation as an independent journalist and as a very good investigative reporter, uh, my question was whether or not the agendas that he was following, following were that of an independent journalist looking for truth or whether there was something else there and whether or not uh, he was participating in this same network that developed artists and journalists writers and others in the cultural Cold War designed to prevent um, democracy from falling into the, the hands of, of communist ideologues. So this very special process and Wright's very special place in it seemed to me almost like uh, something of a Manchurian candidate. Only what Wright is has presented to us uh, as as truth, as independent journalism, as investigative journalism has been colored by a set of relationships which he never disclosed. And one of the things I, I call to attention in the book is that you would think if you had sat at the kitchen table with one of the most powerful men in the country, and if his, if that individual's son was a very close friend of your father's and you were writing about your personal life, you might mention those individuals. But Wright has never mentioned them, nor acknowledged his father's relationship with Robert's story, 
nor the fact that Robert Story was involved with legal foundations that were funding front companies for the CIA. And and in the course of all that, uh, the title Manchurian Journalist occurred to me, that there is a story that we are hearing from journalists that we respect that isn't necessarily the real story. And that's something that, that I think is important for everyone to know who's interested in the truth and interested in being able to make good decisions based on truth, not on someone else's version or idea of the truth, no, especially absolutely. if there are hidden agendas. Of course. Now, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to delve a little bit deeper. I'm going to read a quote that Dan has written so we can look further into the real meaning behind the idea of journalism not working for democracy uh, and working for these um, uh, interests, other interests that, uh, that that are not meant to serve. This has been at the crux of what all of us have been seeing in the COVID era, that it seems that uh, it serves um, the people that are pushing the disease and the solution against the will uh, of the people and the interests of the people, and it all comes together. But this is a different story completely. The Manchurian Journalist will be here with Dan Luzadat. We're going to take a break and be back with more here on Weekends on TNT Radio. Give me a minute with TNT Radio's Steve Malsberg. Ladies and gentlemen, it's the end of the week. So how about a little dose of Joe Biden at his best to get you through the weekend? Folks, um, uh, I... Uh If I were smart, I'd say thank you and leave. There's asylum, asylum officers and over 100 cutting-edge inspe- inspection machines to help detect and stop fentanyl coming out of our southwest border. Greedflation, shrinkflation. You see that article about the Snickers bar? Well, it's going to stop. America, we're tired of being played for suckers. We get thousands, look, we, we, you know, we now have, we used to, before the recession, before the, the pandemic, the beer brewed here, <laughs> it is used to make the brew beer in this refinery. Oh, Earth Rider, thanks for the Great Lakes. I wonder why it's going Cost 10 bucks to make it. 10 bucks to make it. We'll teach Donald Trump an, a valuable lesson. Don't mess with the women on Now, normally this would be humorous, funny, you know, but this is a man who's president of the United States and looking for four more years on the job. It's frightening. Thanks for giving me a minute. I'm Steve Malsberg. Catch my show Monday through Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern time right here on TNT. Even the mighty might not see it coming. It's pre-diabetes, and it captures one in three adults. But you can escape. Take the one-minute pre-diabetes risk test to know where you stand and prevent or delay type 2 diabetes. Be your own hero on smartphones everywhere at doihaveprediabetes.org. When the whole world seems turned upside down, we sort through it together. Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT.
Oh, there I am. Welcome back to Weekends. And I was just talking with Dan in the break, and uh, he detected that I, I might enjoy my job. And uh, that's just a, yeah, maybe you can tell by my, my beaming smile, but isn't it wonderful that we're able to access people from all around the world doing incredible work and calling out what's going on. And on that note, I'm just going to read a quote from uh, some, some work that Dan sent me. The evidence is not only in the media's failure to tell us the truth about other important issues, environment, poverty, racism in general, discrimination, religious intolerance, but in the industry's failure to tell us about itself, about who and what controls media decisions that so affect every American life, in fact, all lives. There are powerful questions about powerful institutions that arise over what role journalists have been taking or taken in shaping our perspective on history and to what purpose. What, where does a journalist loyalty lie with his institution, with the truth? with something else. And Dan, as a freelance journalist, you are outside of that system. This must be a, a great divide in establishment media, as it were, but at the same time, you've still got to sell your work back into the establishment media. So how do you put all that together and um, explain it from a perspective that may get other journalists to realise that there is some form of conflict of interest at play here that they can actually accept? Well, you know, doing this book was, despite the fact that I've been in journalism since I was a teenager, it was a revelation to me. It was, um, there was an uncomfortable feeling to much of what I was doing. Because as I was looking into uh, the depth at which um, our anxious intelligence networks um, were trying to make contacts in order to help shape the narrative uh, that people in America uh, are hearing and to uh, help control that narrative. I felt a, a certain uh, sense of loss I expected as a journalist uh, living the life of a journalist and being fairly successful, uh, not to the level of Lawrence Wright or, or other major players out there in American journalism, but, but su successful in certain ways and taking some satisfaction from the importance of journalistic work and telling people in local communities uh, what is going on and what is true and, and what you can rely on. Um, I felt a sense of disappointment the deeper I got into these areas that raised questions about um, how accurate a story we were getting from the media. I love journalism. I, I always have. I've taught journalism in, in, at the college level. I've, I've uh, mentored young journalists. I've uh, tried to teach them things about not giving up, about being skeptical about looking beyond the pat answer, about not accepting authority as the, as the final line uh, to truth, to look for yourself, to challenge those things. So challenging Lawrence Wright about his history, I, I realized that I'm standing uh, in the valley looking at the mountain. And the mountain is is big, and moving mountains is pretty difficult. But I do believe 
that if you speak your truth, however quietly or however determinedly you do it, uh, you can make a difference. And, and that's what I hope comes from some of this uh, inquiry into this history of journalism and this history of influences on journalism that we haven't seen and we don't know about really here. I didn't know about it. I didn't understand it. I had read certain things about Operation Mockingbird. I read Carl Bernstein's analysis of, of uh, 400 journalists uh, on the CIA payroll at one time. I could read the congressional hearing uh, record on, on the exposés on, on improper domestic uh, intelligence activities within the U.S. In the course of all this, I explored the ideas of the CIA being involved in assassinations and political disruptions elsewhere. And the question comes up, where does that stop? And so very recently, I've, I've been listening to the JFK podcast that was done by Rob Reiner, the, the uh, American actor and, and filmmaker, mm-hmm. and the, uh, the single bullet theory and the uh, lone gunman theory and the evidence that exists um, that points to other uh, shooters in the assassination of, of uh, Jack Kennedy. Lawrence Wright clings to the idea of the lone gunman. He told a story in his memoir about a cousin of his who became an ambulance driver and wound up uh, ferrying Jack Ruby back and forth to the hospital when he was being treated for cancer. Um, as I dug into the story and I pulled uh, FOIA documents, Freedom of Information Act documents, and I pulled documents and talked to people in Dallas from the jail, I learned that either that story was apocryphal or it was um, made up. Because while his cousin was, I found his address, I found that he had worked for an ambulance service, but Jack Ruby was not transported back and forth from the Dallas jail by ambulance to be treated for cancer. He was only taken to the hospital at the very end when they discovered he had cancer and he died there. So the representations and the quotes that Lawrence Wright represents, uh, things that were said to his cousin as he ferried Jack Ruby back and forth to the hospital seem very difficult to believe. But I see that in this environment that Wright grew up in, that this was the story. This was the official story. And he has continued to represent that as the official story. And I don't think it is. I, I just um, marvel at, at the fact that, that this this charade can go on and on, but it seems that the only way that it can is that you simply encapsulate as many as possible. And this uh, particular process goes on. You insulate it with the CIA spy agency one way or another, and the money just flows along. I wonder if the CIA can actually tell us anything that we believe anymore. I mean, once you are, I mean, even when George Bush couldn't get it right, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. I mean, how many times does the CIA have to go about the process of fooling us? But when it gets to institutional level, which it is, it seems that every institution one way or another is is corrupted, at what point do the people 
it seems it can only be the people and it's and it's independent journalism such as yourself that people get and work out and read. But I mean, if we get to the other end of it, mean, we've got Julian Assange, you know, rotting in Belmarsh prison, you know, 15 years virtually one way or another, uh, locked e either in the embassy or uh, in the prison without charge, acting as a journalist, uh, releasing information. When you watch the Trustful film, and I recommend everyone does, when you can get access to that at the cinema. We had Kim Staten, on, the director on the show last week. Um, you look at it and and you think this 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 whole truth process, we, 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 the film addresses uh, concerns that Assange may have put people in danger. It, it, it totally satisfies you that that wasn't the case. Uh, when it came to releasing this information, it went about the redaction process. You had journalists from Der Spiegel, um, uh, New York Times, et cetera, and they were saying it's ready to go. And Julian was still saying, no, 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 we still got to do more in this to protect it. I mean, when you look at the, the, the industry, the profession in that sense, um, where do we stand in 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 the sense that uh, there can be some form of um, revolution, realization, a change? Will it be perhaps that someone like Assange is eventually or finally uh, released, charges are dropped, and people can go, "Oh, okay, now we can pay attention," or is this permanent smear campaign simply um, the, the, the machinations of a system in total dominance and control, but at the same time teetering on the collapse of the Western Empire? I mean, it's we, we seem to be right at the crossroads now, Dan. Well, you know, WikiLeaks proved very valuable to be in the course of my investigation because State Department cables that uh, were included in their releases uh, actually told a story about individuals that Lawrence Wright had worked with and told me that they were uh, had very uh, close confidential relationships with the U.S. State Department. Uh, these are foreign journalists um, uh, that Lawrence Wright worked with. They were also serving as intelligence gathering uh, operatives. The, the, the fact of uh, trying to suppress information, trying to suppress facts that people need to know to protect their own lives, to to understand who and and what they are and what kind of world they're living in, uh, is extremely important. And the idea that someone who wants to bring these facts to light that are embarrassing to international governments because of misconduct that's been hidden, these things are important. And I think these are the roles of journalists. When journalism is controlled by institutional interests that will not fund or will not provide the opportunity for skilled, knowledgeable journalists to pursue their passion and to find the truth. That's where we begin to, I think, see uh, a true loss of the things that protect democracy, that protect freedom, uh, that protect us from tyranny. When you reflect upon that, uh, and, and it seems obvious to those that understand it, where does it take society, where does it take the United States, therefore, uh, to be moulded into some other incarnation that um, hidden hands see? How do you how do you put that into perspective and rationalise that? Is it just a, a bridge too far or does it just mean that every day you just still go to work and do what you do and, and, and just play your role in, um, in, in, in opposing it? I think you you play your role. You continue to do what you believe is right. You pursue uh, the truth, 
and you take the slings and arrows as they come and they do come <laughs> i can tell you Oh, I can, I can imagine. Now, um, in 1999, it was uh, Francis Saunders, a British filmmaker and author, who made a film following the uh, by an insightful and well-researched book on the CIA's Cold War propaganda efforts. Was that something that um, that educated you or inspired you in a way that you knew that uh, that other people were onto what you were onto? It was when I when I took a look at what uh, Saunders had discovered, what she had had so well illustrated in her book, it did inspire me to look further and it gave me ideas on places to look. When I found that that John J. McCloy, the chairman of the establishment, as he was characterized by the New York Times when he died, advisor to presidents and a friend of Robert's story, uh, when I discovered his role in intelligence, when I discovered um, how thoroughly uh, this network uh, of great importance to these individuals who were anti-communists, who after World War II were interested in protecting the nation, but who also uh, allowed themselves to, uh, to build a domestic spy network because they didn't trust the people in their own country, I think, uh, and needed to manipulate what those people thought. Um, I realized that you know, these powerful institutions are not something that my little book is going to interrupt in any way. But maybe the idea that uh, a journalist, even a, 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 a journalist uh, like me, a small town newspaper reporter, can still stand up and say, you know, this is what is because I researched it. This is what I did. This is how I did it. And these are the facts and these are the documents that support it. That's the kind of journalism I think we need. Look, we um, we all want to be able to trust journalism again. I mean, uh, we've seen now that we've been hoodwinked in many ways. And in, in other instances, we've seen the rise of citizen journalism. Of course, that is predominantly self-taught. But there is a process, again, uh, one way or another. And it's interesting when we, um, I'm just noting the time, I only got about a minute to go, but Lawrence Wright never did any formal journalism training either, um, as you mentioned in the book. And so it is that um, that doesn't seem to be a barrier. We've seen the rise of people like Russell Brand and uh, others, uh, Joe Rogan, uh, attracting tens of millions of viewers and listeners on their programs. So it's certainly changing. It's a, a very, very uh, different space, but it encourages those to realise that there are disruptors in the industry, but there is also integrity that must be maintained. Uh, Dan, I just want to mention the book again, Lawrence Wright, The Manchurian Journalist. Uh, have a look for it online. Trine Day Publishing is one place. I've seen it advertised uh, on uh, uh, other stores, etc. Uh, it, it's, it's a wonderful book. That uh, it, it, Congratulations. It, it's fantastic that we're able to uh, catch up and have a chat. And I look forward to uh, following uh, other work and, uh, and chatting with you again in the future uh, and, and helping any way I can to be able to bring awareness to the great book. Thank you, Dan. Um, Thank you. Thanks for having me. A, a wonderful delight. Well, we're going to have, a, a, we're going to end the show, obviously. And coming up after the break will be cinema. That is a brand new concept here on TNT Radio. I hope you're enjoying it. I'll see you all tomorrow. Thanks for watching and listening to Weekends with Jason Olborn here on TNT Radio.